not everybody gets lucky. And I think that most of history is this unending series of horrors and massacres. And despite that, this is what's so interesting. Despite that, people still create. Despite that, people still make paintings and have children and, 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 and make music and love each other. And I think that that's something that is even more necessary to remember now, because I think it's very narcissistic in a way to think that our time is worse than any other. Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, self-anointed intellectual historian of the present. My guest on the podcast today is Benjamin Moser. Ben, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Ben was born in Houston, Texas. It's in Texas, if you don't know that. But he has lived for the past 20 plus years in Utrecht in the Netherlands, a city he describes as the Brooklyn to Amsterdam's Manhattan, close to the big city, but different lower key vibe. He's the author of Why This World, a biography of Clarice Lispector, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His subsequent book, Sontag, Her Life and Work, won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. His new book is The Upside Down World, Meetings with the Dutch Masters, which is about his personal encounters while living the last two decades in Utrecht with the great painters of the Dutch Golden Age, which includes folks like Vermeer and Rembrandt, but also a host of other lesser known, but still quite extraordinary painters of that era from the late 16th to the late 17th century. So Ben, I think the challenge of our conversation today is to both honor your new book, which is primarily about a rather distant past, while also genuinely honoring the ethos of my podcast, which is about the present and recent present and we need to do it in a real way, not a phony, the great painters of the past still breathe vibrantly in the present sort of way. So Ben, do you accept the challenge? I accept. Okay. So so you and I met via telephone a few years ago, about a month or two before the publication date of your last big book, your biography of Susan Sontag, which is a book that went on to make no splash in the world whatsoever, winning no prizes, receiving no reviews. <laughs> And rendering it functionally impossible for you to do something frivolous like publish an idiosyncratic passion project about your personal encounters with Dutch painters. Obviously, none of that is true. So the question in there is, after the extraordinary success of the Sontag bio, how did you think about what to do next? So was this already in the queue? Didn't part of you just want to write a slim palate cleanser of a book to shake off the expectations how did you end up where we are today with this book? Well, it's so funny because I've now written two biographies of prominent Jewish women writers of the 20th century. And so people would say, like, who's the next famous Jewish woman writer? And Can't I thought, about them. Right, exactly. I mean, there's so many options, you know, but it's so funny that it's so easy in publishing and in life, I guess, to get pigeonholed and to get sort of put into this little thing. And people would even say to me things like, you could do Joan Didion, but she wasn't Jewish. Right. And I would think like, okay, um, I think people are kind of misunderstanding that I'm not like a serial manufacturer or something. You know, I'm not just putting out content. I'm, I'm actually interested in these things because I'm interested in the ideas behind them. I've always been interested in artists and they can be writers or they can be in this case, visual artists. 
they can be from Holland, they can be from Brazil, they can be from Tucson. I think it's that process of creativity and how people make things and why they do it and how they live their lives and how they fuck it up and how they mm -hmm. get it right. That mm -hmm. I just find for me, it's very logical. It doesn't feel like a break to me. Well, okay. So you and I have talked, I think maybe when, when the one time we met in person, when you were in Austin doing an event for the Sontag book, I think we, we talked about kind of Sontag's beauty. I'm not sure if beauty is the right word. Sontag striking physical appearance or attractiveness and yeah. just your interest in beauty, your sort of unabashed interest in and appreciation of beauty. So in that sense, they're connected. And I guess my question is less, why are you interested in Dutch art? Because I think that makes sense to me. And more just like pragmatically, did you already know this was the next book by the time you'd finish, you know, by by the time you'd put the Sontag book to bed? And And I think also just from a sort of, the perspective of like, how do you think about what is a book? You know, you have a concept and for mm -hmm. the previous two, well, I know, I mean, I think the Lispector one you just wrote, did you almost write it first and then sell it? Am I imagining that? Um, no, I wrote it first. I spent five years writing right, it on which a credit is, card. Which is extraordinary. And then, and then totally the opposite. You were sort of tapped by David Reef to write the sort of mm -hmm. not quite authorized, but sort of authorized biography of Sontag. So you had a big whopping contract from the beginning. This time around, I, I, I'm just curious how you sort of conceived of the book, I think you'd written a lot of these pieces or some of them kind of over the years or versions of them in smaller places. But did you just know like, yeah, that's the next book I'm going to do? Or did you have a period of just kind of like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to kind of chill out for a few years, write magazine pieces or something like that? You know, just when did you know this was a book? I'm not really a chilled out kind of person. I don't uh -huh, think I've, I've ever really it, managed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really like just take the rest of the weekend off. I never have managed to figure out how people do that. I certainly haven't figured out how to do it. And actually, the question you're asking is a very fraught question for me. It's a question I'm facing right now, you know, because this book is just out, which is what's next. Yeah. It's very hard to know what's next. And as I said, you do get pushed in these directions. You know, you write about X and then the next letter in the alphabet is Y. But that's just not how I really work. I have been writing about Dutch art for years, for decades. It's a subject that I love and that I know a lot about and I've written a lot about, but I hadn't really written a book about it. You know, I mean, that's different. Like, so I had written some of these chapters are sort of riffs on pieces I had written before. I mean, they're all redone. Everything's redone, but it wasn't, it wasn't coherent. You know, I had all this stuff on my computer and I had all these thoughts and I had all these I guess more than thoughts, I had emotions about this subject. You know, when you talk about beauty, beauty is an emotional response usually. And so, and those are just what you're not supposed to have if you want to be taken seriously. I mean, Dave Hickey writes about this too. I mean, it's something yep. that can kind of decredit you as a, especially in the academic realm, you're not supposed to say, wow, what a great looking picture, you know, isn't it beautiful? That sort of sounds um, right. stupid. It, it makes you sound stupid in the art world yep. um, for a lot of reasons in contemporary art but you know the question of like what's next and how do you do it and like i have all this i know about a lot of things you know i've studied a lot of things yep. in a lot of places and it sort of feels like a it's like a horse race almost like between all these things like one thing's gonna win and in this case the dutch won i think just because i really wanted to write this book yeah and um yeah 
One thing you said in there that was really interesting to me kind of jumped out at me. You said in the art world, you know, just to be interested in beauty is is discrediting. I totally get that. To what extent do you see yourself as part of the art world in that sense? Because what I would have imagined, and I think maybe this is wrong and I'm projecting onto you, my perspective is I'm out in the provinces of Texas. I'm not part of any world, right? I've just kind of like left, I've I've left that behind in a sense. And I'm not at the level of prominence you are, but there are similarities, I think, in the way that we approach these things. And at some point I was like, I wrote a book about Dave Hickey. He's an art critic. And I had a little bit of anxiety about how the art world would would perceive that, but I'm just not a part of the art world. They're, they're going to do what they're going to do. And I had some frustrations after the fact, after the book came out with the way they dealt with it or, or really didn't deal with it at all, just didn't review it. But in the writing of it, I didn't have a great deal of anxiety about that. And Oof. I picture you out in Utrecht with your Pulitzer Prize winning book behind you and really two highly decorated highly praised books behind you like who gives a shit what professors some assistant professor at you know the university of east angolia or something like that has to say about your perspective on dutch art but is that how you experienced it well i mean i think there's three things that are you know benjamin franklin said there's two things that are inevitable in life death and taxes and i think we can add a third which is the embittered professor review and when you yeah. take on these subjects sure, of that are sort of academic adjacent, right? whether it's Brazilian literature, whether it's contemporary culture like Sontag, whether it's art history, you know this is going to happen. But I'm not part of the academic world. I am sort of, I mean, I think the art world is a fake concept. I think that it, it doesn't really exist. I mean, there's all sorts of different art worlds. There's all sorts of different places. There's all sorts of people, you know, the guy making ceramics in South Korea doesn't know the woman weaving tapestries in Oaxaca. I I mean, it just, it kind of is a meaningless concept, but I think that there is a, um, if we're going to just say it's a thing in some ways, um, it's not my native ecosystem in the sense that the literary world is, which is also something that doesn't quite exist. But of course, it does sort of exist. I mean, it is a community. I think it exists. I mean, uh, I can't speak to the art world. I think the literary world exists in some meaningful ways. Yeah, well, I mean, listen. I mean, I think that there are well, communities wait, of I in- people. I interrupted you. So you were sort of saying the art world, to the extent that it exists, you're sort of, you dip into it. Is that what you're going to say? You kind of dip into it at, in certain, at certain points? Well, I feel much more, I guess, just socially. I know a lot of people who might work for auction houses or for art dealers or for museums or or, or who um, are art historians or who are, you know, critics. I mean, I do know yeah. quite a few of those people. And those people, I mean, I think the big difference between that side of the art world and the academic side of the art world is that if you work in a museum, you're public facing. Yeah. So you have the same PhD and some weird subject that nobody's ever heard of and you did all that. But you go into a museum and your responsibility is partially to the works and to the, you know, all that technical stuff. But you also have to do stuff that gets people interested in art. And so that's more akin to what I see as my role. I mean, I've always tried to be somebody who might take a subject that could seem a little bit intimidating or a little bit foreign, you know, like in the case of Clarice Spector, like that's written in a different language. It comes from a different country. And I've tried to be the person that opens the door that says, okay, here's you know, here's what this is, and I'm going to help you come into this interesting world. 
when you were thinking about this book, so having read the book and really enjoyed the book, and somebody asked me, well, what's the book about? I think there's certain respects in which I could answer that very easily, and there's other respects in which I have a very hard time answering it. So the, the respects in which I could answer it easily is, you know, that it's about all of these great painters of the Dutch golden age. I mean, it's something, some version of what I said in the intro, and there's a series of chapters, relatively short, short to medium length, most of which are focused on an artist. And, you know, it's kind of a lovely profile of their lives, their work, something about the context with which they were received, sometimes something about how they were forgotten about or resurrected later on, periodically a little bit of autobiographical or memoiristic detail from you. So the method is very clear. Where I would have a harder time answering the question is, what is it about as a book? And I think there's an answer to that, but I'm not sure I could tell you exactly what that is. And I and I think you see this in the reviews of the book, yeah. the positive ones and the negative ones is like, what precisely is going on here? And the positive ones are like, okay, I think I have a sense of what's going on here and I like it. And the negative ones are like, I don't think there's anything going on here. Right. Well, I think that, you know, we're all encouraged to have an elevator pitch. Right. Right. So my book is about Susan Sontag. That one was really easy. You didn't even have to say who she was, but I was yep. used to saying, my book is about Clarissa Spector, who is blah, blah, blah. You would see everybody's eyes glaze over and they had never heard of her. And because people haven't heard of something, they think that's a justification for not having heard of something. I mean, I'm talking specifically about people in the publishing world. Yeah. Um, there's not a sense of I mean, it's rare. Some people do have it. The sense of like what we do is about expanding people's knowledge of something rather than just publishing another book about Winston Churchill or something. But yeah. um, I think the book, it's yes, it's about Dutch art, but you know, it's about, I was reading a poet, a black poet who I'm sort of friendly with named Jericho Brown, who won the Pulitzer actually the same year I did for his last book. And his book's a lot about being gay and about being black and about police violence and about abuse and all this stuff. And I was reading it and I thought, this is exactly like my book, which of course has zero of those things. Well, it has some gay stuff in it, but it doesn't have anything else like that. And I thought, what does it have in common? It's about how to survive. Mm. And my fascination for artists' lives, I think, comes from a feeling that, you know, you mentioned that I have a Pulitzer Prize and I'm prominent and all this kind of stuff. That's not how it ever feels to me. I don't think it's actually how it feels to anyone. I know that people see me as a certain something, but in fact, like I am someone who is just as insecure, just as nervous, just as much of someone just kind of faking it till I make it as anybody else out there. And I think that when you look at artists' lives and you realize how dangerous they were and how many of them died young and how yeah. many of them lost all their money and got divorced in these horrible ways and, and and their children died and their their country got invaded and they had to move in with their mother-in-law. I mean, all this stuff, that was Vermeer, the last one. You, it gives you a kind of fellowship, I think. So what the book is about is how to be an artist and what does it mean to be an artist? And then the the, the question that comes out of that is why, why do we care? Why do we need art? Um, and so, I mean, I don't want to write like a little treatise about those things. I'd rather see that as they are acted out in, in individual lives. It's interesting when you brought up the comparison to your friend's poetry, 
I thought you were going to go in a different direction which it, with it. I mean, I like your I like the direction you went in and we'll come back to that. But the direction I thought you were going to go in is we don't expect collections of poetry to have a thesis. Right? What we expect of collections right. of poetry is what unifies them is the voice of the poet and what yes. the, the voice of the poet and what their concerns are and that can be concerns plural over the period of time during which they're writing the book. And then and then I say, I guess, by the voice of the poet, both the kind of general sort of timber of it, but just also the way that they, you know, the syntax they use, the kinds of sentences they construct, the kinds of words they like to deploy. And so at a, at a minimum sense, but, but maybe in a one needs no more than this, your book is that, right? It's about- Right. Your concerns, your love of Dutch art, your interests in these topics about how to survive, what is the life of the artist, uh, mortality, making money, like literally surviving, critical response over the period of time that you were writing this book. I mean, would you offer that defense of your book as well? Well, I think, I mean, I don't really think I should defend a book. I think that's not really <laughs> my my job. But I think that was that, deliberately provocative. That was a deliberately provocative question because I think I mean, you're getting into this that, question of what yeah. is a book, right? What constitutes yeah. a book, and why are there these templates out there in the publishing world or in the critical world for mm -hmm. what constitutes a book? Well, look, this is something that I could also answer with reference to my previous books. Clarice Lewis Spector and Susan Sontag both published completely insane books that had nothing to do with anything. And quite a lot of them, and they were all very different from the previous books. And, you know, they had a completely different voice. They had a completely different concern. They had a completely different publisher, often for this reason, in Clarice's case. But I think that it's true that this collection, or whatever you want to call it, these essays, these chapters, this book, is, is unified by myself, by my the fact that I wrote it which yeah. is something that people often misunderstand about biographies. My Sontag book just came out in Italy last week, and I'm looking at these reviews, and you wouldn't know that anybody wrote this book from these reviews. <laughs> That's interesting. It's all about Susan Sontag XYZ. Well, the reason that you're saying this about Susan Sontag is because I wrote that right. about her in that way. Now, that is true of any other book as well, but for some reason, when you write about other people, there's an expectation that you aren't there. So I write about this woman, Clara Welker, who um, I got completely compelled yeah. by. Um, she was this archivist from the eastern part of the Netherlands about 100 years ago, who wrote this incredibly unreadable book about a painter named Hendrik Averkamp, who was the painter of Winter Fun. And this book, it's like this completely insane, unreadable book. I mean, it's 100 yeah. years old, and she's really pretentious. So like these sentences just go on and on. And I, I know just the way she wrote sentences was so like, you, you know, it's like a weird genius, right? Like it would be, it's so bizarre, It but it requires so much effort, right? It's not bizarre because she didn't know what she was doing. It's bizarre because she was trying to do something that was kind of beyond her capacity in some interesting way. Well, it's totally unreadable. And you think what's going on here? You know, and I got, I kept reading this book and I was like, why am I still on page 487? I'm still reading this totally unreadable, terrible book, but it's because there was this emotional thing happening that I couldn't quite figure out. And I, I was kind of like, 
there's something happening here. So I, I started kind of looking into who she was and it turns out that she was deaf and so was Avrakomp. And so there was this emotional connection. She had projected herself into this person's life uh, in this way that she doesn't actually admit she's doing. Yeah. But it's obvious that this book is like so emotionally pregnant. And um, so I think that you can be honest about that or you could not be honest about it. But in any, any case, you know, you're the one making the choices. You're the one putting the quote here and not there or leaving out the quote, or you're the one giving a little one extra paragraph to Daniel Oppenheimer and one less paragraph to Benjamin Moser. You're making all those choices. And it's funny that there's an expectation of invisibility, yeah. um, even though, of course, it's your book. That's interesting. I'm trying to remember how your book was. Was was the reception different in the U.S.? Was there is there just more of a discourse in the U.S. around thinking about the biographer when you're evaluating biography? I mean, I know I have no doubt that most of the reviews or many of the reviews were primarily about Sontag herself, just because she's just on her own terms such interesting material. But also, your book provided so much interesting material about Sontag. But I would have thought even prior to you winning prizes that they would have talked about you as biographer in part because Sontag herself is such a subject of sort of critical discussion and dissension in the U.S. Right. You were, and you were weighing in in certain ways. No, I mean, I'm not going to say that nobody wrote about my, my own work, but you really see that a lot of people's opinions of my book came out of what they thought of her. Yeah. And so people would attack if they were Sontag worshipers and I was negative about her, they would attack me for that. And if they were Sontag haters and I was positive about her, they'd attack me for that. So I think like in this book, I'm just trying to foreground, you know, uh, this is me talking here, yeah. maybe a little bit more explicitly, because I think that our experience of art or books or music, it is personal and trying to make it impersonal, which is what a lot of art historians do, because they have to. I mean, you don't get a job if you don't do it that way. Is is a lot of that training we were talking about beauty is is to sort of leave out what the emotional reason is that you are writing this. Like, why are you here? Why do you go to museums? Why do you listen to music or read books? And that's not really something that you can that you can describe as well as you can describe the frame or the the color or the brush strokes or the canvas, you can do all that and you can kind of skirt the emotional questions. I mean, one of the things that's to a few of the points you made that is wonderful about the book is I can't imagine a better guide if I were planning to go to the Netherlands and just go on a kind of art binging trip and hit all, hit all the museums and see all the masters of the Dutch golden age. What you could buy, I imagine, what you could get, putting your book aside, is either a kind of like very sort of reference book kind of guide to these artists and the work. On the one hand, lucid, concise, not very personal, not emotional, but sort of helpful introductions to these things. Or on the other hand, all of these monographs, all of these academic texts that you talked about, which would go into sort of all sorts of, you know, academically minded questions about the book, some of which would be interesting, some of which wouldn't be interesting, but would not orient you 
in a nice way, both emotionally, but also if sort of biographically and contextually to this art. And then you have your book, which is like, hey, let me introduce you to not just Vermeer and Rembrandt, where there is an enormous amount of material, but these other people, and you're going to have to forgive me, I'm not going to remember most of the names because to my American ear, they'll but like Turborch and Steen and Halls and Haverkamp and 10 others. Here's who they were. Here's their great work. Here's how I thought about it. Here's some of the context for it. And in this sort of lovely, charming, urbane voice, and here's a little bit of me, so you can almost hear, feel me standing next to you as we're looking at this painting, and here's my reaction. And it's not presented in a definitive, sort of aggressive way, where if you disagree with my emotional reaction to it or my perception of what's going on with it, you're wrong, or you're going to have to tell me that I'm wrong. It's just, this is what I think about. What do you think about it? We could have a nice conversation about it. And that is a lovely thing to have. That's a lovely thing to have, even if I'm not planning to go to the Netherlands and do an art binge. I still have the experience of doing it. And back to that original question we had about what constitutes a book. I mean, there is a way in which just that's an answer to that, right? Like what else would you go to if that's what, if you wanted a sort of survey of the art of the Dutch golden age that felt sort of personal and intimate and a pleasure to read in that way. And my assumption is maybe I'm, I'm doing a disservice to somebody out there that there, that doesn't exist aside from your book. Well, so when I came to this country uh, more than 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I became fascinated by these artists in these museums, because even though there's lots and lots of Dutch art and there's lots of Dutch paintings and they're all over the world, and they're especially in the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of Dutch art in any, in any decent American museum. I went from, oh, this is great. I know something about Vermeer and Rembrandt, which was not very much, but you know, I was an educated person. And I came and I was looking for that kind of book. And you go almost from basically the Lonely Planet guidebook to right. super technical art history. And there's not much in between. And I felt like, and so I went into the art history. You know, I, I did. I went into all the stuff that, that, that I've read over the 20 plus years I've been reading this stuff. And eventually... You know, it is a specialized technical literature, so it does get more interesting, you know. But when you start out and you look at the, like, I have a library right behind my house from the university that's a pretty good library for art history. But you go into there and it's just like aisle after aisle after aisle after aisle of this stuff. And you really don't know where to start. So, I mean, the beginning of the book is called Where to Start because I didn't know where to start. And I didn't know where to start either writing the book eventually just because it's kind of a cumulative experience of just like going to shows, reading stuff, talking to people, traveling, but it takes a long time. And I, so maybe people who read the book will not have to be as, be as gung-ho as I was because, you know, you might have a week, you might not have 22 years to visit the yeah. Dutch museums. Yeah. Yeah. You said in the book that what is it, literally your back, the back wall of your garden uh, mm -hmm. abuts the university? And then you said there's a, it's a three-minute walk to the library where you did most of your research, which I guess I imagine is just you walking around the block or something like that. To the Basically, I walk down the block, I take a left. It takes about three minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's like living, I do kind of live on a college campus, even though it's not really the same thing, but basically. One of the things both 
that you talk about a lot in the book, but that Sebastian Smeed brought up in his Washington Post review was how young these painters tended to die and right. how that inevitably becomes a kind of theme in the book. And I think in your context, your explicit discussion of it, you talked about how you suddenly had a heightened sense of your own mortality and a little bit of a fear of dying. You're in your forties, right? You're kind of late forties. I think we're about the same age. Late forties. Yeah. 47. Uh, I think we are the exact same age, aren't we? Yeah. Maybe six. Yeah. 47. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 47. Oh, okay. So we're the exact same age that you had a heightened fear of death that you attributed to just reading about all these guys who died in their twenties, thirties, forties. In his post-review, Smee talks about surely it must have had something to do with you being a gay man and a consciousness of AIDS. And I'm not, I'm going to have a hard time on the fly doing the math. I don't know when the when the, the really good treatments evolved, but I assume you had some sort 94. of- 94. 94. The year okay. I went to college. The year I went to college. So, so you had some sort of, you, so I'm, and I don't know when you came out, but you had some sort of sexual existence- when the idea of having sex as a gay man was inextricably kind of entwined with fear of death. Is that a fair assessment of his, that that's in the mix too? You know, it's so interesting you bring that up because that is a very rare little moment where somebody says something in a review that you didn't think of already, whether it's a yeah. positive or a negative review. You know, often there's this assumption that I'm going to tell this moron, you know, what's actually happening in his book. Right. But that one, actually, I never thought of that. And I think he's right. It never occurred to me in all the time I spent working on this book, which was years and years. And it never occurred to me that I was that interested in young artists who died young. I think that it also, I mean, I, I wasn't really aware of that. My sexual existence, luckily, transpired post all that. So, um, I mean, I'm not from the generation, which is younger people who've never put on a condom, which I find amazing. Yeah. But <laughs> doesn't that make you feel old? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's most people these days and, um, at least most gay guys. And, um, I think are they that, all on, are they all on the, the pill or is it more just like, yeah, you know, the incidence is low enough. If I get it, I'll take the there's the there's the the well, preemptive I mean, you know, the the pill and then there's the the treatment pill. Right. Well, right. I mean, those are things that date to like the 2000. Well, the treatment sort of starts dating to the late 90s, really. Right. When that right. becomes widespread and AIDS yep. becomes something like diabetes or something that's like a long term, chronic but treatable condition. And then prep, you know, where where which is like a. Is it a pill? I don't know. I mean, this is yeah. something that younger people take. Um, <laughs> right. And um, I guess they all take it. I, I have no idea. I mean, that's something that I don't really, uh, I completely missed. And they take either, it at the same time. They, way, take their, they take their meth, right? They take those two, those two pills at the same time. Oh, God. I mean, who even wants to know? I haven't even heard of all the drugs that people take. Yeah. That's how old I feel sometimes. I'm like, people overdosed on something I've never even heard of. But I think that that experience, you know, of, I have written about this in other places, but uh, that experience of growing up where not only is your sexuality something that is not thought of well, let's just put it that way, by a lot of society, but it's going to kill you. 
Right. I mean, that's what you grew up. We grew up thinking you grew up too. I mean, you weren't gay, but like that was the association of homosexuality with AIDS and death. Yep. Now I, did I internalize some of that? I'm sure I did. I mean, in this book, the fact is so many of these artists died young. I think one of the fascinating things about the Dutch is that we can really imagine ourselves in those houses. I mean, here I am, I'm talking to you from a 17th century Dutch house. Literally, literally. I wrote about literally 17th century Dutch house. This is the yellow room that I wrote this book in that I write about in the house with the real windows that look just like from here. And when I, when you look at that, especially if you move here, it's very easy to imagine these people's lives because they lived in the same houses. Much of Holland is very unchanged. If you've come to Amsterdam, you know, you know what it looks like. It looks exactly the same. But the fact is, these lives are totally foreign to us. I mean, we cannot imagine the sort of things that people believed. I mean, they believed really crazy stuff. They believed that, you know, and like it was a matter of state policy to enforce with weaponry the belief in the Holy Trinity. I mean, this is really stuff that's hard for us to swallow. Yeah. Um, and the fact is, if you look at the infant mortality, it's just out. You know, and this was a pretty well-to-do modern scientific country for the time. So, I mean, a lot of people died young and a lot of artists died young. And I think, again, coming back to this question of how do you survive as an artist, I think somebody else wrote that my book's about ambition, book's about ambition. And I wrote to this guy who I sort of know, I mean, he's kind of a friend of a friend. And and I said, not about ambition, it's about survival. And I then thought about it and I thought really for the artist survival is really the only ambition i think it always was just the ability to get you know you're talking about publishing and like if you you know if you've done this then you're expected to do that and you're this like this is all about survival because it's very easy to lose your audience if you go off the beaten track too much i mean people do expect a very narrow bandwidth from people I think the artists I've always admired, and this definitely includes Sontag and, and Clarice and Spectre, like they were the people who 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 kept searching, you know, and they kept reinventing. And that's that's certainly the story of Rembrandt as well. Yeah, I'll buy that. I didn't it didn't strike me that it was about ambition. Me either, actually. It's interesting. Um, I think I, I agree with you in how you're describing survival. I'm not sure if that's the word I would have used to describe it. I would have maybe said something more like making a life as a professional or something like that. I mean, I guess the element of survival that's interesting or one one element is just the facts of survival were much more grim than they are now. So whereas you yeah. and I are talking about and, and even Lispector and I don't know as much about Lispector, but Lispector and Sontag, which is, well, to survive as an artist just meant could you keep doing the work you wanted to do, not literally could you survive, right? They could have gone and become professors or or school teachers or something like that whereas in some of the stories you're talking about doubtful doubtful i mean i (laughs) I do think like yeah well i guess just in those two cases yeah survival is not literal survival right it's to be able to continue doing the work that we want to do on the terms that we want to do it whereas for some of these guys presumably if they didn't sell another painting Survival was at stake, they, um, and, but you talk a lot died. about so-and-so. Wasn't there somebody, one one artist was bequeathed one share in the Dutch East Indies company and just the yes. dividends from that essentially enabled him to just live as an artist and, and even 
give some, pass some legacy on to his children. So on the one hand, he could just paint what he wanted to paint. And then you had another story and you didn't know why. And part of your interest in the artist was, and I forget who this was, where he sort of stopped painting for, was it 10 or 20 years? And then came back and painted his kind of masterpiece and then didn't paint again for another, for the rest of his life. Um, For the rest of his life. And then he died. And then he died. And was that because he couldn't afford to? Was that because he just... He occasionally had something to say and he said it and then he went off to do his other stuff. Well, I mean, you know, you've written about Dave Hickey. So this is kind of an interesting, similar question. And this whole book is about these questions. And so I think you can be in, you know, East Texas or you can be in uh, The Hague. It can be last week or it can be 400 years ago. But the question of how to survive and like what, I mean, my book is, is, it's really all about these questions and they don't necessarily have answers. But in that case, the question is, how much do you have to write to be considered an artist? And I remember in your book, you know, the preface, you kind of address this, like, is Dave Hickey important enough to write this book about? He didn't really write that much. He didn't really do that much. Well, I mean, in this case, this is Minder de Holbeman, who was one of the great landscape painters. He is Reisdahl's only known pupil, and he's a great, great painter as a young man. And then... And he paints these huge landscapes. I mean, they're incredibly opulent. They're really just fabulous in a way that you see all the confidence of the society and all the braggadocio and all the kind of big dick energy. And then he gets married at age 30 and he stops. He has some kids. He gets a job. And then 20 years later, nobody knows why. And this is often what happens. This is why there's a lot of room when you write about old painting for your own sensibility to come to the surface and ask your own questions because there's just no documentation. He shows up on this island in the south of the Netherlands. He paints this painting that is a great masterpiece, and it's a critic described it as the greatest painting besides Rembrandt's syndics that to have been painted in Holland. It's now in the National Gallery in London. And it's a painting of a road outside of a small town, and it's an absolutely just a stunning gorgeous masterpiece and then he goes home he lives another 20 years he dies and by coincidence also because this is a small country and all these people are sort of related he dies in the same canal where rembrandt died years before and then the question is for me but it's interesting to talk about it in connection to hickey because how much do you have to paint to be a master you know how much do you have to paint to be an artist like do you get to consider yourself an artist if you didn't publish a book last week you know how long do you have to do you have to go all the way to the end you know maybe not not and i say that i think if you if you painted that painting you could go home but i feel very much the 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 need to keep on writing the need personally that is, as I said about relaxing, I mean, I'm not somebody that feels like hanging up my spurs. I feel like I want to do more and more and more. Yeah. And I think that it's hard for me to conceive of an artist who wouldn't want to do more. But that is hard. But that maybe, is hard you know, I mean, there are people that write one book. Lampedusa wrote one book and it was a really fucking great book. And that was enough. But, and I'm trying that wasn't that late in his life, though? Wasn't he somebody who had not? That's yeah. a little bit of a different thing, right? Or like Norman McLean wrote, like the river runs through it when he was in his like seventies or so. There's a, that's a little bit of yeah. a different story. The guy who writes or the woman 
who writes a book at the very end that sort of beautifully distills all the sort of wisdom and experience of their lives from that story, which is to do extraordinary things and then just stop, which I don't get. I get the former. I don't really get the latter. How could you experience all of the satisfactions of creating art and then just stop? Well, I mean, this does, people do this. You know, Philip Roth retired, for example. At um, like 83 people, after write, yeah, like after, right, after writing like, 74 like, novels 70, or something. 74. Right. Yes, that's yes. true. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's a question for artists in general is like, when is it enough and what is enough? And do you have to die? Yeah. I mean, I have behind me here in my house, I have some of Clarissa Spector's last scribbles. You know, Rembrandt, it's pretty clear basically falls over in front of the easel and dies. Yeah. Um, this is sort of a romantic view of the creator and of the artist that I can understand that maybe, I mean, it's different for different arts. Yeah. So if you think about dancers, Dance, dancers yeah. have a short career. Right. They have to stop. Their bodies are done by the time they're, or, or, you know, athletes, like baseball players who are 35 or old, right? Um, they have to go through that sort of death-like transition in their 30s or something like that, right? Or, their, or yeah. their 20s, where the thing that I did that was beautiful and extraordinary and exceptional, I can no longer do it in a really meaningful sense. And even if you have that kind of post-death life, like I remember I saw Barishnikov dance when he was in his 40s and mm. this kind of... yeah. It was not making the same kinds of physical demands on him that that yeah. forming at his peak did. They have to go through that, right? And then they have to figure out what to do on the other side of it. Well, no. and Bristikoff was a great genius, you know, and so he was somebody who probably could go on. I mean, like Dame Margot Fontaine, you know, she went on a little bit long. She went on into her fifties or sixties, even. I mean, but but um, but it's very rare. I mean, most people, most athletes, and most dancers burn out, whereas writers. Right. It takes a long time. It's very rare for writers to emerge fully fledged. Painters, though, like musicians, can be very brilliant when they're young. And musicians yeah. can really be brilliant when they're four years old, and they can have a full career until they're the end of their lives. But I feel that writers usually have to have time to develop. And I think when I was looking at someone like Vermeer, who died at 43, and he painted 35 paintings, some of which are not masterpieces. I mean, that's something I write about in my book that I, I was quite consoled by the fact that actually even him, right. you know, he had his off days. Right. And, you know, there are those people like Mozart or Raphael or, you know, a few people like that that can die in their 30s and have a complete yeah. body of work, but usually not. And there's usually some kind of sadness about it. And I think that a writer who dies young, I mean, I was reading... Paul Auster's book about Stephen Crane, who dies at, I think, 27, you know, and that's a fascinating book because I haven't finished it yet. I just started reading it the other day, but I'm fascinated by how Auster has written about this artistic life that, that was cut so short and yet is feels like it was maybe Is enough. this a recent Paul Auster book? I'm yeah, it's last year. It's I'm tempted to go into a brief Paul Auster digression because I think... And I'm not a super close Paul Auster wa watcher, but I feel like he's gone, his reputation has gone through these really interesting evolutions, which is, I remember, I think, in my 
20s, so this is like late 90s, early 2000s, I think he was kind of perceived of as sort of a hipster novelist and had a certain amount of hipster literary cred. Yeah. And then he passed through that to this other side. And I haven't heard somebody bring up the name Paul Auster in, you know, 15 or 20 years. And I don't totally know what he is to this day. And it's entirely in the, the temptation is to say that what he passed through to was a sort of lesser quality of writing. So he's less at the center of things because it's not as good. But I feel like it's entirely possible that Paul Auster is writing at the peak of his powers right now. And it's just yeah. the vicissitudes of literary reputation that's responsible for the fact that he's not much reviewed or discussed these days. Well, I, I actually don't know that because I don't live in the United States, so I don't really yeah. follow all those vicissitudes, but I can tell you that this happens to everybody. And I think that, you know, he's had a very distinguished career that's gone through a lot of phases. And, you know, if you've written biographies, this is one reason, like you bring up reviews and stuff. I mean, I truly, I'm not, I don't fakely not care about reviews. I truly don't care what people think about me because having done all this thought thinking and, and, and studying and, and, and reading about artists' lives, whether they're painters or whether they're, they're writers or whatever, you know that everybody goes through these ups and downs. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of my book is about how Rembrandt was taken out with the trash, you know, until the 19th century. And then they discovered that he was this kind of Byronic superhero creator. And then they create another stereotype around him. And, you know, these reputations fluctuate. And I think yeah. it happens within your life. Um, I th if you're lucky enough even to have a reputation, I mean, that's something that not everybody even gets the hate, you know? I believe you that you don't. I genuinely believe that you don't care about reviews, but that reminds me of a question I had about the book, which is how much do you care about or think about your legacy? And I mean it in this sense, which is, of course, the book deals with the biggies of the Dutch golden age. But I would almost say yeah. in a way what it's about is the kind of minor rates of the Dutch golden age more than it's, and some of that is just yeah. numerically, but I feel like thematically it is too. So these people who maybe are minor by comparison to Rembrandt or Vermeer, but are extraordinary on their own terms. And you're giving them the kind of same, in fact, the same loving attention and care that you give to Rembrandt and Vermeer in the sense that you give them in some cases more pages and the only sense in which the biggies loom larger is you'll refer back to them in other chapters. So they'll say, you know, say like, like Rembrandt, he died in the same place or, right. you know, he right. was born 10 years after Vermeer died or something like that. And most of the other artists don't get quite that nod to their eminence, but you really do give them as much attention. And I did wonder how much consciously or unconsciously you end up thinking about yourself as somebody, and sorry to go back to this, somebody who has gotten a lot of praise in your own life, but no guarantee and in fact, no likelihood that you will be remembered 50 or 100 years from now. And of course, to your point about my book about Dave Hickey, I mean, I'm writing a book. I mean, I'm worse than that, right? I'm writing a book about a minor writer and a book with a university press that gets no great esteem. So forget about it for me, right? You know, the minute, the not just the minute I die, the minute- You never know. I mean- You never, yeah. you never well, know. I think I would know. Read... I think I would know if I was a great genius. 
like, I think very highly of myself. I don't have false modesty. I think very highly of myself as a writer. I think I'm a very good writer, but I don't think I'm not laboring under, I think I'm not laboring under an illusion that I am a great genius who will be read in a hundred years. And I think I'm right about that. Well, listen, have you ever read Enemies of Promise by Cyril Connolly? No. All right. Well, that's your assignment. Okay. You put this in the link on, okay. your, on your email. <laughs> Enemies of Promise is a fabulously interesting book. And it's written, I guess, in the 50s, 60s, maybe 50s, maybe even earlier. I can't remember. But his question is, how do you write a book that lasts 10 years? Mm. And this is a fascinating question because... It's basically a whole book about like, what does it have to have to last 10 years? And what are the things that trip up writers and get and take them off their, you know, people who start out with talent. And I think, you know, we're the exact same age. So we knew probably a lot of the same people who, when we were in our 20s, seemed extremely talented and who just didn't pan out. And that would be 95% of them, I would say. Right. Is that an accurate number? Who didn't pan out? Yeah, I think so. You have to think about who those people were. It might be ninety. It might be ninety-eight percent. Yeah. Mean, most people having talent isn't just about being a good writer, or being a good pianist, or being a good painter. It's about all these other things. You know, you it's a lot of luck. Yeah. You know, you have to not die. First of all, you have to not get cancer when you're twenty-eight. You have to not die. Um, you have to keep going. You have to be persistent. You have to keep going. You have to um, often choose the right partner. You have to win the lottery, literally. Um, there's a lot that has to go right, and there's a lot that can go wrong. So in Connolly's book, he's asking this question about how can a book last 10 years? And we know, I mean, I am lucky that my first book is still around, and it's been more than 10 years. My second book, we'll see, you know, the Sontag book, it's only been four years, five years, four years. But, you know, most books actually don't even make two or three months. That's right. Gone. That's and right. so... Now with painting, it's different because the painting will still be there. You right. know, physically, it'll still be there. Although, I mean, it could be down in somebody's basement and it could yeah. be eaten by the rats. You know, this happens too. And I think, you know, when I try to look at these artists' lives, I do think part of me is asking Cyril Connolly's question, which is, what did they have that made them successful? So when I look at the, I mean, I actually don't have that many also rands. I would sort of, question that part of your question because um, actually most of the people I write about are great, great artists. I yeah. mean, there are, and the fascinating thing about Holland is that there are so many artists. They're fabulous. I mean, this is what the meaning is of a golden age. It's when suddenly all these people show up, you know, I mean, I'm from Texas. You live in Texas. Yeah. Texas has all the qualities that, you know, it should have a golden age, right? It's got right. lots of money. It's got lots of really good you know, highly educated people. It has every condition for creation. And yet, you know, Dallas is not, nobody's thinking it's Florence, right. you know? Right. So no offense to our Dallasite listeners, but you know, it's true. Like these things happen in a strange way. Yeah. And the, what's fascinating about the Dutch is that there's so much of it, you know, does it last? Does it not last? I think that's entirely out of our hands, but it's also a reason why I write a lot about the critics, you know, because the critics are the ones afterwards who haul your shit out of the basement, if you're lucky. Those are really interesting questions. And I'm thinking about Le Spectre and so much of what makes your book last, what will make it last, 
is her reputation, right? And this would be true of Sontag also, but the point about Lispector is, and I'm not accusing you of sort of calculated, calculated maneuvering, but you've been involved in all of these translation projects with Lispector. So part of- Well, what, I created that reputation. You created- I mean, that book- That's right. That book created- I mean, that you could created that reputation. Right. You couldn't have known that, right? I mean, that was the the strength of the book. But then after the fact of having created right. sort of resurrected, I'm not even sure resurrected is the right answer because I don't know if Lespector was ever even a figure of kind of major She was almost completely unknown outside. So of you you very created you created context. the conditions for your own book's longevity by creating the conditions for Lespector's longevity. And then on top of that. You, I think, initiated this series of translations of her work. I don't know if it's just into English, but but maybe primarily into English, which is another thing all over the world that will maintain her stature. And then, and then, downstream of that, well, who's written the great biography of Clarice Lispector? Well, Benjamin Ozer's written the great biography of Clarice Lispector. With Sontag, it's obviously a different situation because her reputation at the point where you wrote the book was was still was pretty extraordinary though though your book itself then gives it new life for another she was almost entirely unread i mean that's something i really realized reading that writing that book is that everybody knew who she was but nobody read her so i've always hoped that it would lead to that i mean i was thinking about i've just been doing some stuff around the 30th anniversary of dave hickey's book, The Invisible Dragon, and and a little bit to help promote it. And obviously for me, and I am explicit about this to myself, I mean, I care about Dave's reputation. I'm friends with Gary Kornblau, who is the editor who's putting out this book. I want to do him right. solid in helping the book, you know, helping the book come into existence, helping it get what, it, what little attention my efforts can bring it. But also I'm thinking somewhere in the back of my mind, my, my book only exists beyond its publication date or beyond the few reviews that it got to the extent that Dave Hickey has read five or 10 or 15 years from now. I'm, I'm curious what Connolly is talking about. Is he talking, I imagine he's talking about those things. Another thing that I've thought about, I think, and I occasionally, mostly unconsciously, but occasionally consciously think about when I'm writing a book are, there are things you can do that immediately date it. And so I avoid those things. Right. Just right. small things, you know, certain kinds of pop culture references or easy jokes you could make that don't just date it in the sense of like somebody in 10 or 15 years might not know that reference. But I think there's something in reading it where you're just intuiting this was not a book written to to be read past six months after it was published or something like that. Most books aren't even designed that. I mean, most books are some sort of a lot of nonfiction is some sort of journalistic art, you know, trying to comment on some passing phase. I think I've tried to avoid that. And I think that, I think that maybe in this book, one of the reasons I'm so sympathetic to the critics um, and to the study of reputation and why, you know, how, how do we know about Fabrizio's and Vermeer? Well, it's basically because of one guy yeah, whose name was Théophile Touré, who was a great, French art critic around the time of the American Civil War, who really figured out who these people were and really spent his entire life cataloging and collecting and publicizing this work. And it's basically because of him that we have Vermeer at all. So I do, I think maybe my work and my understanding of how reputations change and how really your reputation, my reputation, everybody's reputation is ultimately in the hands of people we'll never meet. You know, that's 
that's a noble cause. And I think I've been very, just on a personal level of just enjoying, enjoying my life. I've enjoyed my life a lot more because I have placed myself in service, yeah. uh, particularly to Clarissa's spectrum. And I've seen how excited people can get when they are offered the opportunity to see things. So I hope this book also will off offer people another opportunity to discover something they might not have really thought about that much. One of the things that one or two of, and I don't know if you read the reviews of your book, I, I believe you didn't care about them, but one of the things that one or two of the reviews said about your book that I thought was interesting and accurate in a sense, but I didn't put a particularly negative valence on it, which maybe one of the reviews did, which is, I don't think you're exceptionally extraordinary at sort of describing in a in a physical way what we're seeing in the painting you're not bad at it but uh, i would i wouldn't count that as your one of your virtuosities that you can paint a picture of the picture that allows me to sort of evoke it in my mind i right. would say what you're exceptional at is talking about both the things around it in the artist's life but also your personal encounter with it and just communicating your warmth for the art and your interest in it and your appreciation of it, but not necessarily what literally we're seeing in front of us. And I think the thing that it reminded me of from what yeah. you said earlier in our conversation was you were talking about how people want to pigeonhole writers into a certain kinds of certain kinds of things. So you write biographies of Jewish women. And or, or even sort of a step back from that, you're a biographer, right? That's what you do. You're a biographer, right? So naturally, you're going to write biographies. And that there's a silliness to that. And I think what's what I was going to respond, that's not silly, that, that that is silly. But what's not silly is we all just have a few things we can do, right? If we're, you know, right. if we're lucky, we have two things we can do or something like that, two or three things we can do. And it's not necessarily in your repertoire to suddenly become somebody who's a virtuosic describer of the physical world. Uh, but what you can do is talk about your encounter with art in really interesting, compelling ways. Is that is that a fair, I wouldn't even call it a criticism. Is that a fair description of, of who you are? As well, I think it's interesting. Yourself? Like, um, first of all, the book is lavishly and extremely extensively illustrated. So people can look. Right. Um, at the paintings because they're on the page. So I always was kind of trying to make it as easy as I can. But secondly, I also say very explicitly, I'm not very good at seeing visual art. Yeah. I am a language person. You know, you know, I speak a lot of languages. I've, I've, I've been a translator. I'm a writer. I, I, that's my thing that I understand is language and how it works and how it creates and deforms the world, which is the subject of my two previous books more than Susan Sontag wasn't nice to her girlfriend, which is what people thought the yep. subject of this book was. So I think that I write a lot about how I have borrowed the eyes of other people. I've borrowed the eyes of other critics, of, of art historians, of historians of, of taste and culture and, 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 and objects and costumes, all this kind of stuff that comes into art. I think that I like Sontag, actually, who was not good at seeing things. I mean, this is something that fascinated me about her and that some people thought was offensive that I said that she was a terrible, she couldn't see a lot of art. But I thought this was very interesting because I'm actually quite similar in the sense that I need to think about stuff. I'm not a visual person. Yeah. I'm not a natural artist. 
in that sense. I don't necessarily see the color in the disc. I might see the story. Okay, this is a mythological painting of, you know, the rape of Europa. And this is this. And then I would probably, the way I think about it is I think, oh, Rembrandt is painting this. He must have seen Titian that. He must have seen this Greek vase that's in the Villa Borghese that everybody drew in the 16th century. I mean, that's kind of more how I think of how yeah. I look at art. And I also do look at it, I'm, I'm not really looking for that quality. I think the quality I was looking for, and not always, but I mean, this is what this book is about, is I was looking to art and to artists as a way to understand something about life. Yeah. And though, I mean, I thought that was pretty obvious. Well, Especially it's interesting, I and, I, and I, I guess partially I connect to that, having written a book about an art critic and, and myself not being, on the one hand, not being an exceptionally visual, being much more a words person than a pictures person, but also I think, to, like you, somebody who's fascinated by the visual world and compelled by it, but yeah. not not necessarily exceptionally good. I, have you ever read um, this random association? Have you ever read Leo Stein, any of Leo Steinberg's stuff? Um, I have a whole shelf of him right next to me. I had a book, and the one book that I've of his that I haven't read a ton of him. I read that the famous one about the representation of, I forget the name of it, the representation of Christ in the sexuality of Christ, the sexuality of Christ, which is a mind blowing book. But I had another book of his <laughs> about, I don't even remember what it was about, but the way that guy fucking saw was mind blowing. I mean, the way that that guy yes. could look at a picture and just put every, the things he could see. And then also on top of that, the capacity then with words to articulate it, was just, I mean, that yeah. was at a genius level of thing. And I always think about that. The other thing, the other, at the total opposite end of things was I remember one of my professors in grad school, and this has always stuck with me. We were doing a week on Jane Austen and we'd read a few of her novels. And I love Jane Austen. He loved Jane Austen. But he's like, notice, by the way, that she's really shitty at describing things. Like her descriptions of the landscape are incredibly desultory. And I was right. like, holy shit, he's right. Like Jane Austen is not good at describing things. It's not a knock on Jane Austen, yeah. it's just a fact about her. Well, but often the people that we learn from, in my experience, I mean, this is sort of what I thought about Sontag, the people who are natural, like you're not going to learn how to run from an Olympic gold medalist because right. that's just a different level. Right. The person who's going to teach you how to run is like the person who's a little bit better at it than you and who's right. thought about it a little bit more and who can actually walk you through the things you need to do and like you need to eat this and you need to get up at six in the morning and you need to stretch first and you need to not go too fast at first and you build it. I mean, that's who you learn from. Right. And I mean, for me, I am very visually sensitive actually, but I'm not really a, I guess I'm more of a decorator than a creator in that sense you know yeah. like i know where stuff needs to go and i think that's also something that i feel pretty pretty intuitively in language but i think that you know you can learn a lot from people who've had to think about it more yeah. and the natural virtuosi are not the people that you want to learn you don't want to learn how to play the violin from you know it's Perlman. You want to learn it from yeah. the lady down the street who's taught a lot of other kids yeah and who you know who taught it yeah when he was four right when he was four I've, I've learned a lot from those people in my life. And so I hope that, that I can even be one of those people to others. Yeah. Who might not really know where to start. I think you are. This is, a, this is a different topic, but one of the things that you talk about in the book about your occasional encounters with contemporary politics and then, and then your sort of, you know, happy retreat from that crime. Right. 
And one of the things that I thought about, and I don't think you say this at all explicitly in the book, and I'm not even necessarily suggesting it's a theme of the book. It was just interesting to me is these are people who are working at a time when conditions were pretty awful by our contemporary standards. Like at some point you make the case, like they lived in Haiti, right? Wasn't there some Mm -hmm. sort of anecdote about you were self-conscious about talking about this stuff in Haiti. And then some friend of yours there said, what are you talking about? You know, we appreciate beauty too. And you realized, of course, uh, made- Well, not just that they appreciate it, but they've actually created great art and not despite their poverty, but because of it. And then we lose sight of that fact when we think about great art of the past, and maybe particularly in the context of Dutch art, where we have such this strong image of everyday life feeling kind of bourgeois and comfortable because of because of stuff like Vermeer's paintings and things like that. We don't conceptualize the Netherlands of the 17th century as this place beset by early death and plague and war and religious dissension and political repression and all of these things. But in fact, it was. And these people were utterly dedicated to their art in that context, which comes around to my question, which is, we are in a time when the pressures to be political or think politically or serve political ends in one's art are extraordinary. And I think they're extraordinary from the perspective of how can you just paint pretty pictures when there's so much suffering in the world? And I guess, I don't know if the question to you is, were you thinking about that at all in your book or just do you think about that at all in your own life or in writing a book now at this time, even that phrase, at a time like this, um, to write about. Yeah, people always say that. And I think like, when was the world really (laughs) awesome? You know, when was everything hunky-dory? 1995. 1995. Right. Amazing. Right. Well, go to Sarajevo. Right. And um, there's um, there's a sort of expectation now that art has to engage with something immediately political, which often, as you know, I don't don't think I'm breaking any news here, creates very tedious books. It creates boring movies. It creates preachy people that are just annoying and that you don't want to listen to. And that is part of a kind of movement of contemporary boredom that I think is, is unfortunate. But I think that there's even been over here, I'm sure you know, or maybe you don't know, there's been a movement about discrediting this term, the golden age, the Dutch golden age. Oh, no, I, I, I guess I don't find that surprising, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, okay, because guess what? There was slavery. Women were treated badly. There was all this other shit going on, of course. But it's even become kind of a right-wing term, the golden age, because it's, right. well, we're not, don't forget about this and that. Well, nobody forgot about any of that stuff. I mean, the idea that there was this time when everything was just absolutely perfect is completely the opposite of the point of this, which is that despite the fact that everything was awful, it always has been. You might have gotten lucky. You and I were lucky to be born in a country at a time at the height of its imperial power yeah. where we didn't have to go through even the stuff that our fathers had to go through. I mean, I don't know if your father had to go to Vietnam, but I mean, my Father I, my not, father defended the defended the coast of Texas during the Vietnam War, as we like to say. He was in San Antonio. My dad, my dad was in Galveston. <laughs> I, yeah. So, 
thank God, you know, thank God for our dad still safe. Yeah, I know. Otherwise, you know, the you know the the Vietnamese would have the <laughs> Viet Cong would have been at the Galleria in Houston. But there's something like you know we got lucky. Not everybody gets lucky, and I think that most of history is this unending series of horrors and massacres. And despite that, this is what's so interesting. Despite that, people still create. Despite that, people still make paintings and have children and 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 make music and love each other. And I think that that's something that is even more necessary to remember now, because I think it's very narcissistic in a way to think that our time is worse than any other. I think it's yeah. better than a lot of other times in history. And then some places and at some times it's worse. And, you know, our term will come just as it always does for everyone. I think that in the meantime, there's this very dismissive comment, you know, this phrase, the ivory tower, yeah. which is often applied to people who write the books that I write or, or people who put on a show about bronze halls, you know, in the middle of the Gaza war. But we do to come back to beauty we need beauty and we yeah. need that sort of inspiration and we need that sort of life force that that it gives because otherwise it's complete nihilism and um and there's really no reason to live i think about what is the you know i think there's a sort of totally vulgar ignorant critique of that perspective or or of the of of the idea of creating beauty which is just the ahistorical one which is people who genuinely believe at a time like this how can you make art at a time like this like they literally don't know i mean they know but people they, don't remember anything about politics before donald trump that's right so so they, the I mean, they almost literally don't know that the world has always been a really brutal place so that's the kind of ignorant right. one i right. think the more sophisticated right. one one from which i descend and i imagine you do too is more of a, you know, maybe it's like a kind of Marxist descended critique that's saying, yes, I'm aware that the world has always been a place of terrible injustice. Our job here on this earth primarily is to um, do everything that we can to ameliorate that injustice. And so you're right, it's always been horrible, but I guess in, in retrospect, it was always a mistake to focus on making art. They should have been, you know, Rembrandt should have been organizing the dock workers or something like that. Uh, I mean Listen, people are free to do both. And I think that um, they should do both. And I think that this is another big question in my book is what is the role of the artist in society? Yeah. You know, what is the responsibility that, that creative people have to try to change the way you see the world? But it's interesting that in the Dutch case, which is never, you never hear this about the Italians or the French or, or you know, the Spanish, um, there's this insistence that Dutch art is this middle-class kind of bourgeois pastime. And this is so stupid because Dutch art is so fantastic. I mean, it's like fantasy, fantasy land. It's mm -hmm. absolutely disconnected from that. It's a completely, it's an artistic creation yeah. that people in the 19th century started trying to see as realistic, yeah. which results in all sorts of kind of hijinks. Like I talk about Paulus Potter's bull right. in the Myrit's house, which is this completely obviously fake animal that's like composed out of 12 different parts. And it's just like, it's this fake bull. And people thought it was so easy to fool them into thinking this was something realistic. I think that if you're a person of the theater, for example, you know that stepping out of 
the street and into this world where you are sitting with all these people agreeing to see, agreeing that this is a real thing that's happening on the stage. If you go to the opera and you see Maria Callas, you don't think she's not really a Spanish gypsy seductress. Right. He's just a lady from Washington Heights. Like you don't think that. But in the case of the Dutch, there's this kind of fake and annoying insistence on reality. I think the reality of art is a reality as much as any other. I mean, how do you think about the responsibility of the artist? I would really distinguish between two what I see as pretty separate questions, which is what is the responsibility of the artist to his or her art? And then what is the responsibility of the artist as a member of society? I have all sorts of thoughts on what the responsibility of the artist is to his or her art. My basic answer about what the responsibility of the artist is to society is to just kick it back to that other question, that the only responsibility the artist has to his society is what his responsibility is to his art. But I'm curious where you... Well, I think it depends on the time and the place and the person. I think, you know, I'll give you just a couple of examples. I mean, I've always been very active in the Palestinian movement, particularly in the Jewish pro-Palestinian movement, which Mm -hmm. I find very important. I find it having come from the American South, but also being someone who's descended from from refugees from, from Nazism. It's extremely important to me to speak up for quality and for and for anti well, you say anti racism, it sounds so cheesy now. But But is that you know, is that anti-racism. Ben Moser as artist or is that Ben Moser as as citizen? Because I I, I also have all sorts of I don't necessarily in my in my mind okay. and in my soul there's no difference. Mm. Um, it's so just I, who I, I am. experience it very distinctly. I say I have my responsibility as a citizen, as a human being, mm. to justice, to equity, to all of these things. Sure. And that is really different for me from what my responsibility is as an artist. But you don't feel that. You don't. I mean, do you? Well, I mean, I think it's this is like a lot of my book is about like, where are those lines? You know, where do you draw those lines? And sometimes, I mean, the other example I was going to give you was a lot of Ukrainian writers now whose country has been invaded and they are going to the front and they're getting blown to smithereens. Now, you could say you should be home writing a sonnet, which maybe they should, you know, but on the other hand, if you stay home writing your sonnet, your neighbor who's not some fancy person who gets to be published in these magazines and stuff, He's going to go get blown up. So, you know, these, and and in Bosnia and Yugoslavia, which I wrote a lot about in um, my Sontag book, these are real life and death questions. And I think that, I think that your responsibility to, when you, when you write is to embody the same values Mm. that you embody in your political life. And my values have always been very clear. I mean, I've written well, my first book about Clarissa Spector, you know, it's in a large part about anti-Semitism. It's yeah. about a lot of other things too. But it's about what does that do to people? What does racism do to people? Um, a lot of my second book is about what, you know, is it enough to sign the petition? Is it enough to go to the rally? Or do you actually have to go to Sarajevo and get blown up? Mm-hmm. As Sontag was ready to do. She was she was ready and and could have easily happened to her that she would have. Is it enough then to go to Sarajevo and almost get blown up and then put on a play? Like, come on, Susan, putting on a play, what does that make 
what difference does that make? Was it waiting for Godot? Is that right? Was it, it was waiting for Godot? And yeah. so when you go to Bosnia and you say, come on, wasn't that a frivolous thing for some spoiled woman from New York to do? And people say, no, it was a question of life and death that somebody mm-hmm. cared enough about us to see us as human beings and to come put on a play that we would want to go see that showed something about our lives. So, I mean, these lines are always, I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to think to... about whether what you said about embodying your values in your work. I mean, when I think, imagine a Ukrainian writer going to the front lines and getting blown up, that makes sense to me. Not that I've gone to the front lines, but I don't think my art is more important than my children. Right. So that's not what right. I'm saying. Right. right. My children are more important than my art, not at every moment, not to the utter exclusion of my art, but I have made all sorts of choices to privilege my responsibility makes it sound too dry. Like my, my love of my children and my desire to be right. present as their father. I prioritize that a million times over writing. Mm-hmm. That's not where I have a yeah. difficulty. I'm not somebody who thinks, you know, I think the number of artists who are so extraordinarily great that, you know, maybe Sontag was one of them, that their beastliness to other people is in some sense justified is very few. And in any given case, you're probably not it, right? And I'm not, you know, so that I don't have much ambivalence about. I think when you say you embody your values in your work, in some basic sense, I think that's true. But I think the values that I or you are likely to embody if we're working authentically are going to look kind of different than what are ex- often going to look kind of different than what our explicit political commitments look like, and would be harder to articulate. And I not don't for me, not, not for, for you. Me. Okay, for some reason it doesn't feel different at all. I think that the, mm. for example, if you're talking about the values that you derive from the Nazi Holocaust, and then you say, well, why are you writing about Vermeer? Yeah, and. Rebecca West said something very smart. Rebecca West said a lot of very smart things. One of the smart things she said was that this, the war against Hitler was being fought for Mozart. Mm. And <laughs> I always think about that because what else is art and Mozart but the values that make us more than more than beastly mm-hmm. people who slaughter each other on a scale that, I mean, I, I say beastly and I hesitate over the word because it refers to animals and animals certainly don't come up with mass slaughter, you know, what Israel's doing to Gaza or what, you know, what happened in the second world war, the animals kill something and eat it. And then they keep going. Right. Um, only humans are quite as bad as, as this. And I think that when you, when you uphold the value of culture, when you uphold the value of, of humanity and the values that we derive from literature and art, that has a value that isn't very easy to measure. And I think that the people who uphold culture, which is something that sometimes despite her beastliness, which I don't like, I mean, I'm very happy to not have to talk about it defend it anymore because it was got really fucking old having to talk about yeah. stuff that I actually and having to kind of defend and repackage stuff that in fact was absolutely reprehensible and disgusting. But, you know, in her life and her public life and in her writing, she did stand up for those values. I think the point of my book and all the questions that are in the book is they don't necessarily have answers. They're yeah. meant to kind of get you thinking, um, but they're not really stuff. You know, how much does an artist have to produce? 
what is an artist's responsibility to society? All these big questions, they don't really have answers, but I think it's good to think about them. You think in the Dutch context, I don't remember, maybe it was in the book, but I remember reading it, like, did they, were these questions about politics questions that they asked themselves urgently? Or was there just more of, I guess what I imagined was there was just more of a sort of culture and, you know, almost imagine it like a kind of guild culture of like, this is the thing you do. This is a life. This is a vocation. You're an artist. Not that mm -hmm. they didn't think of themselves, you know, on kind of deeper, more transcendent levels, but there wasn't the kind of ambivalence or agony about I'm doing this, but I could be either on the one hand making money in finance or on the other hand, I don't know what the 17th century version of organizing the dock workers would be. Maybe it would be organizing the dock workers, but I, I don't have the sense of them having those same kinds of anxieties. And I don't remember you kind of writing about that in the book, but maybe they did. Well, I mean, the thing that's so interesting, this is why there's so much room for us as, as readers or as viewers to fill these things in, is that we don't really know a lot about their political views. Rembrandt, you do know something about his political views, but for almost nobody else, do you really even have any idea? But then I think that one of the things that I've learned as a writer, and as I think everybody learns, is how much of it is just work. You know, you can think I am incarnating the superior values derived from the struggle against Hitler. Okay, fine. But most days, you're actually just trying to write like three paragraphs that aren't yeah. right. ridiculous, you know, that are like kind of decent enough to like turn in your thing to like your piece in by your deadline. So I think that these things, I think everybody thinks about them and everybody tries to sort of, um, I mean, everybody who's a real artist or a real um, serious person, because, because, you know, being an artist is part of being a person and, and being an artist doesn't mean you have to be Rembrandt. You can make a pot on the weekend, yep. at your, you know, but if you have that experience, you do think about that and you try to be honest uh, in your art as you would hope that you would be honest towards your friends and your neighbors and your family and your and your and your nation. But I mean, as Joseph Brodsky realized, you know, just because you read a lot of books doesn't make you a better person. That's something yeah. that there's not necessarily a connection to it. And that's why I write a lot about the darkness of Rembrandt. Rembrandt was a quite quarrelsome person. I mean, this is sort of unfair because we don't actually know that much. We know yeah, the that stuff that ends up in you know, if all that anyone knows about you is that you got sued, well, that's a pretty partial picture. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so we fill it in and I think, but but you can feel a lot through painting yeah. about who these people were. You said earlier, you remember kind of after you finished the Sontag book, there was this kind of horse race between different projects and this was the one that won out. You know, what's the what's the race now has it has it started yet yeah it started it's really interesting you might find it interesting because we're born in the same year it's kind of about the generation of the bicentennial um our generation mean who were born our generation our generation who were born in america at the height of its imperial power and grew up in a time of constant improvement so you asked me about aids and all these things you know, that's a great example. AIDS was terrible and it went away. Yeah. It didn't go away for everybody. It went away for anybody like us. And we saw constant improvement in our lives until suddenly we didn't. 2001, right? We didn't. Well, there are, I, I'm giving, I'm saying maybe 2000. 
I actually think that the the, the George Bush stolen election was okay. an important moment. I say to but, my you know, it's not I say to my kids thing. all the time, you don't realize how shitty you have it. I don't really mean that. <laughs> but I mean it in the exactly. sense I mean it exactly. in the sense precisely the sense exactly. that, that you're saying it, which is your entire life has my daughter was born in 2006 and she's the oldest. Your yeah. entire life has been in this like really shitty period in America where things yeah. are grim and kind of even if they're not actively getting worse, what their static has is kind of crappy. They're getting worse. Yeah. I don't think anything's not getting worse. I mean, some things are are not. But but I mean, I think that's the feeling that everybody has. We didn't have that. We lived in a time of improvement and progress. And it was so I'm trying to write about us as a generation as not doofuses, you know, not clueless people. But first of all, our progressive worldview was the only worldview that was possible to us, I think. Yeah. But also, it was also a great time in a lot of ways. I mean, we had our problems, but we had an unbelievable amount of freedom. And we had a real optimistic feeling and hope that unfortunately made us quite lazy. I think that people of mm -hmm. our generation are not very smart or creative. They're smart. They're not creative. That would be um, a very hard, maybe this is part of your challenge. I totally buy that thesis. If you ask me what the book version of that would be, that would be a very hard thing to conceptualize. Like, how do you concretize that thesis in a book that people want to read? Like, what's the, what's the flesh? How do you put flesh on that thesis? Me, it's me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a memoir. Oh, okay, um, I, I'm I'm calling it a, a memoir in the first person plural. So it's okay. about us in general. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, I I I have been a very successful member of my generation. You know, I am exceptional in certain ways, but it's about the ways I'm not exceptional. Yeah. You know, it's about the ways in which I think there was a kind of zeitgeist that made people. Um, I don't know if you read this piece I wrote last year. It's called How I Stopped Being Gay. I don't think so. It's about, well, it's about growing up gay. It's about AIDS and all that. And then how AIDS kind of goes away. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's not all of a sudden, it took years and years of activism and lawyers and work, but by historical standards, relatively quickly, everybody stopped caring that you were gay, right? Like anybody I encounter in my life, unless it's like, I don't know, I could get unlucky and walk down the street and you, but like, I've actually never really encountered homophobia except in sort of oblique yeah. ways, Yep. but not to my face. I'm also six foot five. So, you know, people tend not to really fuck with me. Yeah. But I think it's about that process of, well, why should I do anything about this? Like, it's going to be yeah. fine. Yeah. I have you that know? same feeling about being Jewish. I don't know if you do as well. Yes. It's like, very, very similar. I could, I could come up with some shit that was like vaguely, I wouldn't even call it anti-Semitic. I mean, there's people who thought it was kind of funny and weird in like a vaguely insulting way, but they didn't care. I mean, I just, and, 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 and well, I know, I mean, I think you and I could probably, we're from the generation where like microaggressions are really the worst we can complain about. Right. My father, you know, we're talking about the Vietnam war, like, you know, and he, so, I mean, my father got out of Texas law school and which he went to immediately after he graduated from rice because he had to keep his student deferment so he wouldn't get blown up in, in South Vietnam. And he comes back to Houston and he knew that there were law firms in Houston that he yep. just wouldn't apply to because they didn't hire Jews. 
Yeah. Now that is a story that is completely foreign to me. I, I never wouldn't have applied to something because I was Jewish or gay. I mean, and I think that a lot of this race stuff that's happening now is losing sight of how much progress there was. I mean, my parents grew up with the separate water fountains and the separate schools. And the, I mean, that was all, it was right daughter, before we were born. My daughter, in her one of her classes, they were talking about the Israel-Palestine thing. And there wasn't anything terrible, but the outspoken kids in the class were, were pretty critical of Israel. And she's feeling just weird. Like, this feels uncomfortable to me as, as, a, as a Jewish person. And that was her first experience of that. And I was saying to her, just some version of what I said to you is I never really, really experienced that. It's reemerging in some weird way, right? I never really yeah. experienced that. But then I also, to your point, I said to her, you don't realize when your grandparents, who you know well, were growing up. Right. Anti-Semitism was just, it wasn't a total virulent form of it, but it was just pervasive, right? You just knew if you were Jew, there's all sorts of places you weren't welcome. And there are all sorts of people who will right. down on there's you. schools you didn't go to. Schools you didn't go to, country clubs you weren't welcome at. You know, just like all sorts you of- couldn't get. And it, yeah, it is extraordinary. Yeah. And, I, and I have to think about this in a more critical way, because I think oftentimes I've been approaching that feeling from a somewhat defensive perspective, which is- feeling like there's a perception out there that those of us who came of age in that time were sort of deluding ourselves or we were sort of not taking we seri- weren't deluding ourselves taking serious this is this is well we weren't deluding ourselves and i we, guess we, the other thing i'd say is isn't that what we want i mean why why denigrate that experience of relative peace and social harmony in favor of dissension and conflict well right like it was identities in our time became optional. Like if you wanted to go to Chabad and grow out your four locks or whatever, fine, you could do it. But like you also were, and that was true of gay people. It was true of all sorts of ethnic minorities. I mean, I'm talking just about the United States, but it was also an international thing. You know, we were much more, we were able to be much more cosmopolitan. We were able, we we went to school with all sorts of people. I mean, my parents both went to school only with white people for their entire lives. Right. And, you know, we didn't have that. And yes, it wasn't as perfect, but like you did have a feeling compared to from zero to maybe it was only 30% of where it needed to be, but that 30% had been attained in a very short time. And, you know, we grew up in an economically very prosperous time. We grew up in a time where war felt like it was going away. We grew up in a time where the divisions of, of, of the Cold War were vanishing. Um, we thought that there'd be peace between Israel and Palestine. We got rid of the dictatorships in Latin America, much most of which we had installed, but that's a different court. You know, you had Nelson Mandela in South Africa. You, yeah, you really that's had right. a helpful, hopeful time. Yeah. And that it would go wrong in such a fat, quick time. But I don't, so I don't really want to, in the book, I'm not focusing just on the bad stuff that happens after. I'm focusing right. on the feeling of that we had at that time of this very lucky generation, but being lucky, you know, it didn't make us super creative because, (laughs) you know, the world was created. Yeah. It's interesting. I was thinking about one of the challenges of, for you of trying to sort of advocate for liberalism. And it's always a problem advocating for liberalism, which is it's the absence of liberalism that feels much more kind of acute and fierce than the presence of it. So I think of something as sort of yes. is, is, is relevant in 
in the sense that we're talking a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies now, and I deal with that and, and conflict over them. And I deal with that in my job. And one of the things that I was and remain an advocate of in that context was just the, the soft liberal bureaucracy of, of DEI multiculturalism, right? Which is, there was this, there were these bureaucracies and these institutions that were in existence to recognize people's difference, but facilitate communion across it and celebrate it in a soft kind of wishy-washy way that, that I actually think was kind of ideal, but that's a very hard thing to defend from attacks from either direction, whether it's attacks from the left that's right. papering over lots of inequalities or it's attacks from the right. Of course it's papering over. That's the whole point that's of like point, every right? political system, right? right? Paper it over. Kick the can down the road. You know, I mean, that's what most of politics is about. And that's what also most of just interhuman interaction is about, is like trying to avoid conflict, trying to make it a little bit better. But I think that what happened, and that was a good solution in the 90s in a way, because it was a palpable difference from, with what had come before. But I also think that now, I don't agree with this about race. I don't know what that makes me, you know, it makes me a reactionary well, it, or something. It's meaningful. But, it's, uh, it's meaning has changed. I, I mean, I think it's part of what I'm saying is it's it's meaning in that context yeah. was one thing. It's meaning in this context is a different one. I was also thinking about, you're saying papering over. I'm thinking about, didn't David Reef write a book on the need for forgetting? That, that, that actually right. was talking about the value of remembering and reckoning with historical atrocities. Well, this is true. I mean, this is something like if you, you know, he spent a lot of time in Yugoslavia, as have I. And you, know, you see that actually, yes, there was a difference between the Muslims and the Catholics and the Serbs and the whatever and all this stuff in Yugoslavia. Yes, it was papered over. But actually, it was when it stopped being papered over that people started getting killed right. and the whole society fell apart. Right. And I think that, of course, there's always differences in society. There's always in every society. This is one of these American, we're talking about eminent Americans, but this is one of these moments of incredible American narcissism, which is that Americans think they're the only country with racial minorities or right. intercommunitarian tensions or whatever. I mean, it's just absolutely, it's just, you I mean, know, it's yeah, not the, that special. The right and but the most left. Most countries have this. The right and the left share a contempt for the papering over and the sort of clutched together and what I would think of as the necessary hypocrisies of living in some kind of comedy with well, other It's not people. hypocritical. I think that, you know, no, it's not hypocritical. I think that you can make things better for, you can, yep. you know, you can, you can have diversity in, 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 in education, for example, without having it be conflictual. You can discuss people's differences without making those differences define everything about how you interact with those people. Um, yeah. I'm very excited about this book, actually. I wanted to get a little discussion started about something. There's a lot of discussions. I mean, I think I like books that- All right, well, let's, I mean, let's book our next oh. uh, podcast conversation for its, for its release. <laughs> all right, all right. I just read something that sort of semi applies to us. What's um, that? I don't know where it was. Some sort like that two straight men should be able to have a conversation without it being a podcast. Oh, <laughs> and, and I guess I was going to say we're not straight, but I guess what you're saying is functionally we. I mean, speak for yourself. Right. <laughs> That's a joke for our listeners. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, it was fun to talk to you. God, yeah. there, there's a lot to talk about. There is a lot to do. I think we successfully met the challenge of having it be both about your book in the distant past and the present.
I think we we succeeded. Well, I think if a book is not about something about the present, then it's just antiquarian. I agree, but speaking, that doesn't. You but know? you have to structure the conversation such that that comes out, right? Because you could spend right. a conversation about your book right. just talking about all these artists of the past, and and then it would sort of be of the present only in the semi-phony sense that I that I worry articulated as as a right. insufficient. Right. At some point, we'll see each other in person again, either over here or over there. Someday. I need to get over Someday. to Europe, and I'm I'm calling you up when I'm I, over. When it's I get still yeah. here. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'll take you to the museums. Sweet. Bye. See you, man. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day. Thank you.